0: representation really has two aspects. And one is uh, what's often called the vehicle, the physical thing, like the physical map, the the sounds that I'm uttering now, written text on the page. And what makes those things, those physical things representations, is that they carry information about something, uh, something outside themselves. So a representation then has these two aspects. It's a physical thing. It's physically realized. That's the vehicle. And the vehicle carries a message, uh, information about some sort, and we call that meaning or, or content. So, so far, that's just about public representation. So, mental representation um, is the idea that something like, something kind of similar in relevant respects is going on in the brain. So, what that means is there's got to be some kind of vehicle, some kind of physically realized thing maybe it's a sequence of symbols maybe it's something that we can't even imagine but it's a physical thing that can that that can play a causal role in our thinking and in our behavior and so on and moreover that physical thing carries some carries information and that's what we call the content of the representation
1: hello my geeselings," this is mother goose robinson Earhart here with the introduction to Robinson's podcast, number 86. And this episode is with Frankie Egan, who is Distinguished Professor of Philosophy at Rutgers, where she works on the philosophy of mind, the philosophy of psychology, and the foundations of cognitive science, along with a bunch of other adjacent topics. But recently, Frankie's been researching computational models of cognition and how they relate to representation and i think that if you toss in uh, psychological explanation uh, a bit about the mind's boundaries and how the mind interfaces with our bodies and the world then you've got a pretty good summary of the content we cover in this discussion but there is some i mean if as if that the dog's shaking out his ears as if that weren't a mouthful i think that some background information might be really useful uh just about psychological explanation and then representation in general and there are different levels of psychological psychological explanation or different ways in which we explain the way that people think or how their brains work. For instance, we might reason about people with what's referred to in the philosophical parlance as folk psychology, which is a, a pre-scientific, uh, pre-theoretical modality. Uh, you might also talk about folk physics for instance how we just before science based on our intuitive understanding of the world that we live in how we see physics but the way that we reason about psychology as folk revolves around what what are called propositional attitudes and a propositional attitude is a mental state or an attitude that is related to a proposition and that is in a very uh explanatory that uh, that doesn't sound like the right word that isn't a very helpful explanation it just sounds redundant but anyway it contains some sort of propositional content so i want to eat ice cream which we might i mean take that as a phrase i want to eat as a sentence or a proposition a sentence i want to eat ice cream and we might paraphrase this as robinson desires that so that's my attitude and then the proposition robinson will eat ice cream or i'm afraid of starvation or i'd hate to go to bed hungry and you might explain my observed behavior of going to the fridge for ice cream by referencing one of the propositional attitudes i just mentioned and that's what i mean when i say that uh we are engaged in psychological explanation by referencing uh, propositional attitudes. But this is just one way in which or one level at which you can explain somebody's psychology because you can also explain my behavior of going to the uh, fridge by referencing neurological mechanisms or the, the motion of quirks and protons in my brain though that wouldn't be particularly helpful or in representational terms and this is this is what i mean when we when i say that we discuss psychological explanation but i should also then say a bit about mental representations and this is actually a pretty vexed and confusing subject i think and it's what we spend most of the conversation exploring but a representation is really just something that carries content or conveys information in the sense that the sounds uh, coming out of my mouth are a vehicle to use Frankie's uh, terminology that she uses in the episode for conveying information to you. And the question of mental representation then is what the structures are in the brain that represent or if there are any, um, how they do this. For some useful background information, you might wanna check out an article on the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy called Mental Representation, and that's by David Pitt. And you should also check out Frankie's website, which is Francis-Egan.org. The last thing I should say is, comments subscribes all of those things are likes they're always so helpful and i also have that channel on twitch and youtube robinson eats where i eat a pint of ice cream or or something else and i do this pretty much every morning though i'm not sure how much longer i'll be doing it in the morning but i'm going to continue doing it every day and now without any further ado i hope you enjoy this conversation as much as i enjoyed having it Frankie, as far as I could tell from your publication record, you've always been working in the philosophy of mind. And I saw that you you got a a master's in philosophy, a a PhD in philosophy. Even when you were an undergraduate, were you already focused on the philosophy of mind or did that come a bit later?
0: Um, I guess I've always been interested in philosophy of mind, but um, I have... uh... I think a, a, lo- a really a, an earlier interest in uh, in in philosophy of science. So I've come to kind of philosophy of mind from a philosophy of science background. Although questions about how the mind works, how it's related to the body, and so on, have always interested me. But but my focus has really been more from philosophy of science. My my undergraduate teachers were Pat and Paul Churchland, uh, and they oh they wonderful. Yeah, both of them studied mm-hmm. under uh, under Wilfred Sellers at, uh, at at the University of Pittsburgh. So I kind of got that uh, that that that's that's kind of my earliest background. Um, I I learned mm-hmm. an awful lot from them. They're eliminativists about the mind. I mean, they have pretty radical views. Right. Uh, I don't share most of those views, but I do really share uh, an interest in trying to in in approaching issues in the philosophy of mind from a philosophy of science perspective.
1: Mm-hmm. Pat was on the podcast a few months ago, and it was, it was really wonderful talking to her, but I can imagine how having them as professors would really uh, suck you into the philosophy yeah, of mind, and philosophy of science. they're incredibly passionate. They're, they're really they're great teachers. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. I learned a lot and it was mm-hmm. a lot of fun.
1: Something that I was wondering as I was looking over your work is you're so interested in psychological explanation, uh, representation, theories of cognition, and even vision and perception. And this led me to wonder why it was that in particular philosophy seemed like the appropriate track through academia to research these topics rather than say psychology or neuroscience or cognitive science or something like something else like that what was it about philosophy that engaged you more uh, for these topics
0: um i think i mean of course i still uh, i i read a a lot in psychology and neuroscience and in -hmm. in philosophy in in science generally um i think it was uh it, it was the the focus on foundational issues uh, and not so much on the, on the details. Uh, so I think that, uh, in general, philosophers who work in, in, in the various kind of empirically oriented uh, branches of philosophy have come to it from an interest in, the, in, in, in that empirical domain, but an interest in really the foundations of what's going on in the science. And um, at least in early stages of studying those sciences, you're not really... You're not really free to question the assumptions and the and the foundations of the of the discipline. So that was why I I mean I, I was interested in I have a general interest in philosophy. I came to um, philosophy initially as a as a freshman, uh, motivated by by an interest in political philosophy and philosophy of religion, uh, and then just the, the the world of philosophy kind of opened up to me as I as I took more courses as an undergraduate.
1: When you say the, the foundations of the science, the first thing that comes to my mind is foundations of mathematics, which I think of as this whole constellation of questions surrounding maybe epistemology, uh, metaphysics, so like the security of our knowledge about mathematics, uh, what the objects of mathematics are what do you have in mind when you refer to like the foundations of the sciences of of cognitive science of neuroscience or psychology? What are the sorts of questions there?
0: Yeah. So one particular, uh, interest that I have, uh, is the role that, uh, representation plays in psychology, in, uh, in neuroscience. So a a whole, Complex of foundational issues would be concepts that we encounter in everyday life, in uh, in uh, in other branches of philosophy, and just in generally in kind of our intellectual endeavors, and the role that those uh, that those concepts play in the actual science. So that's kind of what I think of. Mainly as foundation, uh, as sort of. I mean, that, that's that's certainly an important kind of foundational issue across the sciences. So, for example, in biology, it might be how are species, how is the notion of species understood in uh, in in evolutionary theory and in biology generally? How's that? What? How, how's the notion of gene to be understood? How's the notion of population to be understood? And similar sorts of questions for psychology, um, and neuroscience. Well, you you mentioned I mean, I think, sorry. I was just going to say oh, no, that you, you working go. scientists very often don't um, they don't discuss these foundational issues. But if you're coming to it uh, from an interest in it, it may maybe in more general issues, then then, then those are questions that are going, going to occur to you. How are the theorists actually using the notion of species or or, um, or representation or concept or and so on?
1: Yeah. And so you mentioned representation a a few times now, and that's, as you know, exactly what I wanted to talk about. And there are are different sorts of representations, but particularly I wanted to talk about mental representations. And and I would ask you what they are, but that's exactly what's up for debate. So I, I suppose that what I ought to do is ask you something along the lines of how in a loose, uh, bare bones sense for my audience that isn't familiar with talk of mental representations, how people think of them without sort of getting into the nitty gritty yet of their purpose or their reality or whether they're they're figurative in some sense. So maybe what the the textbook idea of a mental representation
0: yeah good so the, so let's start with um, with the, the general notion of representation uh, it has its home in kind of public in in the domain of public representation so there's maps there's written written text um, I can represent I can tell you about what I did yesterday so th- that's kind of the standard basic uh, application of the notion of representation it's part of our public lives
1: and Those- the idea is that like a map, what, what makes it a representation, uh, just to clarify, to make sure we're on the same page, is that, uh, the map or the words that we used to say about what you did yesterday, they carry some sort of content that isn't really located maybe in the, in the symbols or like the drawings themselves.
0: Yes, exactly. Good. So a representation really has two aspects and one is Uh, What's often called the vehicle, the physical thing, like the physical map, the the sounds that I'm uttering now, written text on the page. And what makes those things, those physical things, representations is that they carry information about something, uh, something outside themselves. So a representation then has these two aspects. It's a physical thing. It's physically realized. That's the vehicle. And the vehicle carries a message. Uh, information about some sort, and we call that meaning or or content. So, so far that's just about public representation. So mental representation um, is the idea that something like, something kind of similar in relevant respects is going on in the brain. So what that means is there's gotta be some kind of vehicle, some kind of physically realized thing. Maybe it's a sequence of symbols, Maybe it's something that we can't even imagine, but it's a physical thing that can, that, that can play a causal role in our thinking and in our behavior and so on. And moreover, that physical thing carries, some, carries information. And that's what we call the content of the representation. Now, okay. um, I mean, one interesting question is the, lots of people work on how, we, how public representations Get their get their meaning or content. But philosophers of language focus on that. An interesting question. It's it's in it's in terms of some kind of convention or agreement among the users. So that can't be the answer to how mental representations get their meaning. Um, they have to get their meaning in in some other way, and that's the so-called problem of intentionality.
1: Mm-hmm. Now. Just so that we have more of a a concrete example to work with, how is representational language used in cognitive science? So I know you've worked a lot, for instance, on on vision and the history of theories of vision. So maybe an example here uh, might help us see a bit more of what's at stake when we use representation talk in a, a more realistic setting?
0: Okay, good. I mean, that's a source of a lot of controversy. So the kind of standard view on that is that, um, is what what I might call kind of robust realism, robust representational realism. And that's the idea that in uh, theories of vision, for example, posits structures in the head. So that's the vehicle that causes subsequent processing and ultimately behavior. And those structures uh, have content, and how do they get, so they mean something, and they typically mean something about, they have meaning with respect to something that's going on outside the organism. And in having content, in representing something outside themselves, there's a substantive relation, holding between the thing in the head, the vehicle in the head and what it's about. It's meaning or content. It's the thing in the world. So maybe, um, there's a structure in the head, a, a theory of vision, um, might posit structure in the head, um, that means edge in the world. And representational realists think that there's, there's really, there's some, independently specifiable substantive relation between what's in here and, and edges in the world in virtue of which what's in here means edge. So that's real, That's robust realism about representations. Other um, theorists of, uh, 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 of computational or cognitive science have various kind of anti-realist positions on representation. So one, po- one position is f- fictionalism, for example. Uh, which is the idea that there aren't really these structures in the head, but it's useful to talk about them for various purposes. And then, uh, I mean, that's one anti-realist position. There's other kinds of anti-realist positions as well.
1: Can we talk a bit more about the robust realist first, before we move on to some of the elementivist positions? Sure. Sure. So... When you say that there are structures in the head, so there, there's the vehicle, and there's the meaning as you or the content, as you put it earlier, and right. the vehicle using the, the vision example, I'm guessing that the vehicle is just the substrate of the brain. I mean, the, uh, the neurons, is that roughly what the vehicle is supposed to is supposed to be?
0: Well, the, um, the vehicle is, is a structure, typically, that's realized in neural matter. How it might be realized is an open question. Different, uh, different theories. I mean, so there's, there are big questions about how these structures that are posited are, are realized. Are they properties of neural networks? Are they properties of individual neurons? So that's a big issue. But the vehicle is generally understood to be a more, more abstract than, than, than just neurons or even populations of neurons. So it might be, um, for example, a typical okay. I see. process of activation. The, the vehicles are, are at a level of abstraction above the, the, the above neurons and neural substrates.
1: So just like, for example, a, in, in a written language, might, the
0: letter A, for example, there's different ways that it might be realized in even just taking handwriting or or tech, you know, typed um, type symbols. Mm-hmm. We can we can generalize over uh, a, a whole uh, a whole dif- a, a whole range of physical things. We're abstracting away from certain physical properties, and so that's the way to understand the vehicles. They might be symbols. They might be something something else.
1: So to use a the computer analogy, the vehicle isn't the actual physical hardware, it's the software that is run on on the hardware, and it can be realized in different medium media.
0: No, the vehicle is a physical thing, but it's an it's an abstraction over different particular. So for example, um, it might be that neuron let's, let's stick with neurons. It might be that neurons firing at a particular rate in a, in various regions of the brain count as a particular kind of vehicle. So the vehicle isn't necessarily okay. this particular neuron with this particular, with these particular neural properties. It might be, uh, it might be, uh, it, it, in, instantiated in different ways in the in the neurons but it what's important is the vehicles they're not the software they are causally efficacious properties of of, of the brain so their vehicles are causes they're just not uh, they're they're just they're abstractions off particular all of the physical details are not necessarily relevant to a particular vehicle's type identity as that type of vehicle. So just like for, I think it's, it's useful to think of letters. The letters might be, you're writing something. You could be using blue ink. You could be using red ink. You could be writing in caps, writing in, uh, in, in, small letters. Um, You could be, it could be cursive. It could be printing. All of those things are are different ways of of realizing or instantiating, say the letter A. Now, the vehicles are that population or that group grouping of uh, different kinds of physical things as a, a symbol or a vehicle uh, abstracts away from a lot of physical detail. But what it gets you is, mm-hmm. is, a, is a type of thing that's, that has causal powers. That's crucial. And so there is a vision then posit these structures that play causal roles in in perceptual processing. So perceptual processes run off those those vehicles. So it's definitely, it's not not software. It's it's, it's hardware considered at a a level of abstraction that doesn't necessarily require uh, focusing on particular aspects of the the neural realization.
1: And the other question that I had about the realist position is just what this the quote unquote substantive relation between the vehicle and the thing it represents is supposed to be. Is it just like a a causal relationship or something more abstract even than that?
0: Um, that's a great question. So that's where a lot of the controversy is. So um, that's where different theories of, of co- content come into play. So information theoretic, or co- we could call them causal theories um, of content, say that it is a causal relation uh, between what's between the tokening of the vehicle, between the, the, the structure you know occurring in my head and what it's about. That it's based on a causal relation. Now, that, that, that's a little bit too simple, but that's kind of the, the basic idea. Then, um, teleosemantic theorists claim that it's not necessarily a causal, that, that's not the relation that grounds representation, it's rather some kind of functional relationship. So for example, uh, Ruth Millikan and other teleosemanticists claim that a structure in the head gets its meaning from the function that that structure played in the evolutionary history of the organism. Now, there are obviously going to be causal elements in that story, but the 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 the, the uh, content of the structure is determined by its role, say its causal role back in the period when it was stabilized by that process was stabilized by evolution. So, those are two very different accounts of what the substantive relation underlying the representation relation is and there are other there are other possibilities too
1: the next thing okay. that i was going to ask is you mentioned the eliminativist views as well in which i mean w- well one version of them is they take representation talk as somehow analogous to fiction talk so representations are useful fictions but Right. I wonder, I mean, when I, when I, what I'm supposed to make of then me seeing you right now, because obviously what's happening in my head, something's happening in my head. I mean, I'm seeing you, uh, this, I'm not, I don't know how to, how to put this in technical language, but the you that I'm seeing, isn't the you out there. It's, it's all inside of my head. And what is this in my head if it isn't a representation, if this representation talk is fictional? Why is this not just like a verbal issue of what to call it?
0: Okay, um, so the issue concerns how theories, uh, psychological theories, neuroscientific theories are to be understood. So. Kind of the, the the realist interpretation is that the theory posits a structure uh, in the head, and then it gets interpreted as saying as being about edges in the world. So the the fictionalist says that no, uh, there's no we're not really to take talk of representation as being as, as we're not to interpret it realistically. We're not to think that there's really a structure in there that gets interpreted, that um, talking in terms of representations serves various useful functions, like maybe predicting how the, how the organism is going to behave in certain circumstances, maybe systematizing um, various aspects of the theory. So it serves various Pragmatic purposes, really, but we're not to be we're, we're not to really think that the theory is saying this is actually part of what's going on in the head. So it's a question of what are the actual ontological commitments of the of the theory and the fictionalist says we shouldn't think that talk of representation is talk of, about anything real. It's just it's just use, useful for certain purposes. So that's not to say that there are. It's not positing fictions in the head of the subject. Rather, it's saying it, it's saying that when the theorist talks about representations, don't take that seriously. Don't think that that's saying anything uh, concrete about what's what's going on in the head. Does does that clarify it? So it, it's it's a question of theory interpretation.
1: Yeah, it, it it does clarify it, but it still leaves me wondering then how the fictionalist or eliminativist would have you talk about the experience of you or the perception of you that I have in my head, if we're not using this representational language, is that a major obstacle for the fictionalist?
0: Well, there's always a question about how, what what the connection is between, uh, what the theory says about what the brain's doing and what your pers- what your experience is like when you're undergo- when you're, you're undergoing the process that the theory describes. So there's a question, for example, with respect to, th- to theories in early vision, how that relates to the subject's visual experience. And I think you're asking a question uh, I think you're asking a question about the latter and the fictionalist, and, the, and to some extent, the eliminativist, they're, they're somewhat different positions, is, is talking about what's going on in, in, in the theory. I'm not, I'm not sure that, those, that there's a, a straightforward answer about how those two things hook up. So when another, a different example would be um, some Bayesian theorists think that uh, construing what the brain is doing in terms of, of, of Bayesian processes Gives us a nice way of systematizing and predicting how the how how the brain is going to behave, how how the how the how the processes are going to play out. But we shouldn't think that the brain is actually doing Bayesian calculations. We shouldn't take those. We shouldn't take that realistically. Shouldn't take that. now. You know a, a, that's that's fine. I mean, some Bayesian theorists claim that they're just. That, that's all they're doing. It's just a predictive and systematizing device. But of course, that doesn't uh, if that's if that's what they're doing, then they're not offering explanations about what the brain's doing when it is able to execute certain uh, cognitive capacities or perceptual capacities. so to to construe the theories as fictionalist is is to, Basically to say, I'm not offering an explanation of what the brain is actually Right. No,
1: that, this example with the Bayesians uh, makes this a lot, makes it, makes a lot of sense. It clarifies a lot for me. And moving on though, in your, is it jean Nico? I guess that would be the, the French pronunciation, but I think of uh, the jean Nicode lectures. Yeah, jean Nicole. Yeah. yeah. you,
0: yeah, Jean.
1: Have you propose and defend a third uh, deflationary view about representations that is distinct from the robust realist and the eliminativist uh, position? But when I when I hear the term deflationary in a philosophical context, I often think of fiction because they both are ha- the fictionalist because they both often have a certain connection to instrumentalism or pragmatics and you you use the word pragmatic in in conjunction with the fictionalist position so i'm curious about how your deflationary account works and why it doesn't just end up treating representations as useful fictions
0: Okay, good. Yeah, the term deflationary can mean all kinds of different things in different domains. So let me try to spell out what I mean by it when I'm talking about mental representation. So um, my deflationary view of mental representation claims, one, that there isn't a substantive relation, robust substantive relation that holds between what's going on in the head And uh, and what the uh, that structure is about, what the representation is about, say, edge, you know, edge, edge structure in here, structure in here and edges in the world. No substantive. uh, So so no causal relation. uh, Oh, there's lots of causal relations. Sure. But there's no kind of there's no over and above. There's there's no let, let me back up back up a little bit. And and put this in terms of the distinction between vehicle and content a deflationary view because a deflationary view kind of in a sense splits the difference it goes with robust realists uh, with respect to the vehicle and claims that those things a theory that has explanatory pretensions that claims to actually explain the process has got to posit causally efficacious structures that play a role in the processes so it's realist about the vehicles, and it's pragmatic or, inst- in a sense, instrumentalist. I don't really like that way of putting it because that tends to uh, put us in mind of you know of, of just eliminativism and fictionalism. The idea, though, is that there's not uh, there isn't some kind of naturalistic uh, relation that holds between. The, the thing in the head and the thing out there that it represents. A second uh, plank of uh, my deflationism is that content isn't an essential part of, of these structures of representations. So the mental states that get acquired, internal states that, that, that are attributed content in a model the, the content isn't an essential property of that state. whereby I, I, I mean this if that's, that structure could have been given a different kind of content or maybe no content at all, and it could still be the same type of the same type of mental state. So content isn't an essential property. Content can vary and it' still it'll still count as the same type of, of, of state. And the third, the third plank is, is that content gets attributed uh, for various pragmatic purposes. Content attribution is always pragmatically motivated. And so that kind of connects with the first the denial that there is this substantive relation that has nothing to do with kind of any, any pragmatic elements, any purposes that might be served by positing that relation. So content's always pragmatically motivated. It, it's, it, it's, it's determined by, by, by various kinds of functions that it can serve. Uh, in the theory, functions in the theory, not functions for the organism. So remember, I talked a few minutes ago about teleosemantic uh, theories of content. Teleosemanticists claim that it's the function, the function that that uh, that that structure serves either maybe now or in the evolutionary past that determines its content. I'm claiming when I talk about pragmatic attribution of content, I'm talking about, I'm really talking about the purposes that attributing content to that internal state serves for consumers of the theory, for uh, people trying to understand what the theory is doing, students trying to learn 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 the science, learn the theory—not functions served by for the organism itself. So that that distinction is really important. Content serves various functions for 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 the theorist and for consumers of the theory, and it's not its basis. It's not grounded in any kind of substantive relation between what's going on here and what's going on out there. So that, that, that's what I mean by deflationism in the domain of mental representation. So it's realism about the vehicle pragmatic about the, uh, about the content.
1: Okay. So it's to, to paraphrase, to make sure that I understand we, the content is still in a way, uh, a useful fiction, but we're still a realist about what's going on in the brain.
0: Um, yeah, I guess, I I guess that's an okay way to put it. Given that content is abstract though, um, content, content isn't concrete. Um, I'm not completely happy with describing it as, as a fiction. Uh, because contents are, you know, they're, they're like numbers, uh, well, I, I don't want to get into that issue, <laughs> but, uh, the, the point is rather that, uh, the justification for attributing content is purely by what it does for the theorist, for the consumer of the theory, not for the organism. Right. And that, that's, that's an important distinction. Right. But I, I, I don't think we should call it fiction. Uh, it's, you know, the, the theory might but, attribute certain content for certain purposes, and that's just the content that that the theory is committed to.
1: But when you say for the theory and the for the consumer, is this to stress, though, that the content is useful in explanation rather than in the processes going on in the organization? Yes. Okay. That's a, that's a better paraphrase. Yes, exactly. Okay. Okay. Perfect.
0: Right. You... And, like, let me just say one thing, though, just to underscore that the vehicle, uh, fully realist about the uh, about the vehicle, mm-hmm. assuming that the theory is being offered as an explanation an explanation, of what the brain's doing.
1: Mm-hmm. Now you used the the word naturalistic earlier. And I want to hone in a bit on that. Now, what does it mean to say that, for instance, computational cognitive science is in the business of naturalizing representation or other mental states?
0: Yeah, I think in general people mean different things by it, but I think in general the idea is that computational cognitive science is in the business of explaining perceptual and cognitive processes without presupposing anything, anything intentional, anything semantic. Uh, it's trying to explain those those kinds of processes how we're able to mean things about the world. Uh, without presupposing anything in any semantic or intentional relation holding between what's in the head and what's out there. Yeah. I think that's what, mo- that so, so-called so naturalistic semantics is the attempt to describe a relation between what's going on in the head, structures in the head, say, or states in the head, and what they're about in the world um, that doesn't make any reference to anything semantic or intentional, because that would be, that would be, in this context, uh, question begging. So, naturalistic semanticists try to explicate what the grounding relation uh, of meaning, of in, in intentional content, is. Uh, it might be causal. It might be, as I said, kind of functional or teleological. It might be in terms of some kind of structural similarity between what's going on in here and what's referred to out there, but. The, uh, it's not kosher to introduce anything semantic or intentional. So that's what so-called naturalistic semanticists have in mind when they, when they describe their, the project in those terms.
1: And is the problem with the semantics or the intentional content for the naturalist or the naturalistic project that these items are abstract and not, not physical?
0: No, um, the problem is that it looks like um, there seems to be too many content candidates, too many different um, relations, or even spec- even specifying a single relation that relation produces or yields multiple contents that are that are in- incompatible. So that's. That's the main problem. So you get indeterminacy of content. Suppose you're int- you, you claim. Suppose the theory claims that it's uh, the causal relation is what establishes or grounds the meaning relation, the representation relation. Turns out that there are that you, you cause it, The co- co- there's no the cause that delivers a single content candidate. The, the classic example of this is uh, Letvin and, and collaborators' frog. Fly case, um, just very briefly. Please, um, please. What does the 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 frog when it fly crosses its, its visual field, its tongue snaps out and, and catches it. What does what does the internal state uh, that starts that process? What does it mean when there various? You know, just sticking to a causal relation. It might be it might be fly. It might be um, it might be food. Um, it could be small, dark, moving thing. The thing that's crossing the visual field that engages the mechanism is all of those things. And those are different contents. So it, the problem is that the candidates for the, this naturalistic relation, this non-semantic and non-intentional relation, seem to yield up to, get to too many incompatible contents. You can't mean all of those things.
1: And why, though you might have already said this, but maybe it just bears repeating for me, but why do philosophers in general believe that computational theories as they stand are not naturalistic in the sense that they they use these intentional terms that are question-begging?
0: Um. Yeah, I don't think that that philosophers think that computational theories are not naturalistic. Oh, okay. Hmm. Um, yeah, so the, this, I think they think they are naturalistic, but um, you might, you know, you might wonder if the the object of study is computational theories and they're naturalistic. They, they they're they're specifying some non intentional and non semantic relation that grounds the. The the meaning of the structures that they posit. You know why isn't it easy to read off from the theories what that relation is? And I think the reason is that computational theorists aren't really assuming any kind of represent substantive representation relation. They're ascribing content when they when they do when they do posit a, a structure and, and attribute content to it. Um, they're doing that for various pragmatic purposes. So they're not positing any kind of, they're not, non, they're not non-naturalistic in that, in that they're positing some intentional or semantic relation. That would be cheating because that's what they're supposed to be. They're supposed to be explaining intentional processes. I think they're just, the, you can't, well, it's important I think, and something that's been missed well, I mean, it's a really this is a really controversial area. So some theorists, many teleosemanticists, think they're finding in the in the science and looking carefully at the at the at the various theories, they're finding empirical support for their theory of of content. Um, there are different teleosemantic accounts of content, and you can find that there. You can find. Um, for example, a neuroscientist saying that structure in the brain represents locations in the, in the, in the rat's visual field, for example. Uh, in the, a rat place cells in the rat's hippocampus fire when and only when the rat is focusing on a particular location. So, and the, neuroscientists then talk about it representing that. But that's, I, that's what I call a gloss on the causal process. they're not not positing any robust substantive representation relation. They're using representational talk um, because it serves various functions there. So with respect to the frog, I'm I'm possibly getting a little bit ahead of myself, but why might a theorist say that the, the frog's brain is representing food Rather than fly or small dark moving thing? Well, it might say that because um, the, 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 the theorist is interested in explaining how what's going on in the frog's visual system contributes to the well being of the frog. So the theorist may, may have the larger well being of the frog uh, in mind, and the theorist's explanatory goal is to explain how what's going on there contributes to this bigger picture. Or the theorist might say, that might be inclined to say that that mechanism is representing fly why i mean why fly well because that particular theorist may be inter- that that might be an ethologist who's interested in explaining what's going on in the in, in the frogs entire environmental niche and so that theorist is concerned with how the various organisms in the, in that environmental niche interact with each other on, you know, on, on, the third, on the third hand, mm-hmm. if the theorist is interested simply in explaining how the mechanism in the head works as uh, you know, strictly a neuroscientific, if it's a neuroscientist of, of frogs explaining the, that mechanism, then small dark moving thing is pretty close to characterizing the stimulus conditions for the, the firing of the, uh, of the internal structure. Mm-hmm. So notice three different content attributions, three different explanatory projects. And and it's those explanatory projects or the goals or interests that the theorists have that drives them or that motivates them to attribute various content. So you don't typically see when you're reading, uh, reading accounts of the theories, those background Interests and explanatory goals and projects that are motivating the, pro- the project for the entire community. Though that's background, that's shared background. It's not laid out explicitly um, in the introduction where the theorist doesn't say, I'm interested in specifying what, how the process works. And so if you, if you could see that, then you could see that how the pragmatic considerations are driving content attribution. But that's not how theories are are typically articulated. They're articulated with certain background assumptions, kind of understood by the consumers of the theory. So it's that, that's the sense in which I'm saying that content attribution is typically for consumers of the theory and it's their shared explanatory goals and projects that are going to, that are going to motivate the, the choice of content when there's multiple candidates.
1: So, to, again, to make sure that I'm following, and I think I am, I think things are coming together, that this is again an example of your deflationary approach at work, in which the content is useful to the theorist because it allows them to better explain and understand what is going on in the frog when they uh, attribute or speak of this representation. Of the fly as a fly, or as food, or as uh, this small moving thing in particular, different contexts.
0: Right, right. So, can I just make two two sort of points Please. of clarification? One is that um, it's the explanatory target, the sort of project that the theorist is engaged in. That I mean, that plays a role in motivating one content attribution over other possible ones. Um, there are other considerations too. So, suppose that the theorist is trying to explicate, to explain how the, how the, the mechanism works, then, um, and, and the story is going to, going to be based in the causal process from the fly crossing the visual field to, uh, to what's happening in the brain that engages the, the frog's tongue. That's a, a complex causal process. Um, one thing that's happening in that in that causal process is is patterns on the retina. So it's not just you know instantly fly, food, uh, small dark moving thing. those are all distal property instantiations. Those are all things that happen outside the frog and that initiates a causal chain and there's a proximal stimulus, patterns on the retina. That's just as much part of the causal process. So why doesn't the? internal, uh, structures firing represent the patterns on the retina. Uh, just as much an essential part of the process. Well, right. It's an essential part of the process, but what the content attribution does, one of its important kind of contributions to the whole account is it allows the theorist to single out what's salient for explanatory purposes in a causal process. That's very complex. The, re- the stuff that happens between the distal property tokening up there and the in the internal structure f- firing in here all of that is an important part of the causal process but that's just kind of abstracted over. We don't they don't need to worry about that. That's not what's carrying the weight really of the explanation. And so that's another sense in which content attribution is pragmatically motivated It allows the the, it, it, it displays kind of what's salient or important in this really complex causal process for understanding uh, what's what's going on given the given the explanatory goals. That's what allows us to you can carry over uh, the retinal patterns are going to differ from case to case, right? Depends on the size of the fly, how far away it is, and so on. Uh, so what what's important for understanding the explanation is the distal, uh, what's going on distally, what's going on in the environment, not what's going on at various other points in the causal chain. But that's a a pragmatic matter. That's what's crucial for kind of understanding the explanation given this planetary Mm -hmm. target. So that's two senses in which content attribution, when there, there are always multiple, there are multiple content candidates and the one that gets selected is going is is determined by various uh, pragmatic considerations.
1: I'd like to dig a bit more into psychological explanation itself, and you you've taught about this. You've taught a course on psychological explanation, and it begins with the. The classical role of representation in psychological explanation, and I, I believe that you you cited Fodor and Pellican on this view, and that's strong representationalism. So, what just what is strong representationalism in this uh, this uh, subject of psychological explanation?
0: Yeah. So, psychological explanation um, has, is a is a fairly big topic. I mean, we've been talking about psychological explanation from the beginning, and the, where the focus has been uh, scientific psychological explanation, explanation in the psychological sciences. Um, there's also an issue. I mean, we that's we also explain and predict each other's behavior uh, in, in in everyday life, and psychological explanation. Uh, so th- it's crucial to our, to our getting, uh, getting around in the world and getting along with other people. Uh, attribution of representation in those two domains, I think is, is quite different, although there's some, there's some commonalities. But I think, so the photo, fo- back to the, so pollution was, is, was concerned primarily with scientific psychological explanation. Fodor's concerned with both. So they're both um, what I call or what's been what other people call strong representationalists in that they endorse the the thesis that I've been calling robust representational realism. Fodor had, uh, so psychological explanation is explanation in terms of mental representations and computations over mental representations, computational processes that run off Mental representations. So um, that was their account, both Fodor and Polishan's accounts of, uh, of what's going on in the brain when, uh, when an organism thinks, acts, and so on. Um, I don't. Fodor also has an account of propositional attitudes, the uh, the, the the states that get attributed in our, in our everyday lives when we predict and explain what other people are going to do and when we justify our own behavior to others. And that's also sometimes called strong representationalism. It's certainly related to the view that I've been explaining uh, in the cognitive sciences. And the idea there is that propositional attitudes like beliefs and desires are relations to internal sentences. So propositional attitudes are mental representations or relations to mental representations and uh, psychological processes, the sorts of processes that, uh, we talk about when we might say why somebody comes to believe something or that we, that we use to explain, say why somebody ran out of a building, Mary ran out of the building because she, uh, believed that it's on fire. And of course she desires not to, not to be hurt and the belief and desire interact and they produce the action of leaving the building. Uh, so according to strong representationalism, the belief is a functional relation to an internal sentence, and a desire is a different functional relation, all, but also to an internal sentence, and they interact in a certain way, and they produce behavior. So the key idea here is that propositional attitudes like beliefs, desires, hopes, wishes, wants, fears, intentions... That's the framework that we use to predict and explain uh, behavior in in, in ordinary life. Um, Those are, according to the strong representationalist view, those really are different relations, you have different attitudes, fear that P versus belief that P, that's, those would be different computational or functional relations to internal sentences. And that's what the attitudes are. So that's, that's strong representationalism.
1: Yeah.
0: So there's clearly, you know, it's clearly uh, a general view about how the mind works. A general view about psychological explanation to explain psychological processes then would be to attribute to the subject, a relation to an internal representation that has a particular meaning and the inter in, in our common sense explanations, it's gonna be the interaction of those that produce behavior. That's kind of the standard, well, that, yeah, I don't wanna say it's the standard viewing of of what's happening in common sense, but it's the standard interpretation by philosophers of what's going on when people attribute beliefs and desires to explain each other's
1: behavior. And since you-
0: So heavily committed to these things, representations. Mm -hmm.
1: And since you mentioned earlier having studied with Pat and Paul Churchland, I take it that this is not the way that they would go about psychological explanation since they're eliminativists about uh, the beliefs and and these propositional attitudes being in the brain. So how would would they explain uh, our behavior uh, if they're not going to endorse the strong representationalist way of doing it?
0: Yeah, so the Churchlands uh, have repudiated any commitment to, uh, to beliefs and desires. They think of, they think of uh, beliefs and desires as being theoretical entities, part of a complex theory that we, you know, just ordinary people, use in, uh, in, in attempting to predict and explain each other's behavior. But they think that that theory is outmoded, false. Uh, problematic in various ways, and it would be better to replace it by more directly by kind of uh, an informed ne- uh, neurology.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So they think that the whole belief desire framework is is a it, it should be scrapped. Is it's it's a theory, but it's a bad theory.
1: Mm-hmm. And you reference a few other challenges beyond.
0: Can I just say one thing, while yeah, following please. up on that? The idea that it's a theory, though, is important because it's Fodor shares that view too. Fodor just thinks it's a good theory. Mm-hmm. So the dispute between rep- the realists and the eliminativists is not about whether belief desire framework is a theory, it's about whether it's a good theory or not.
1: You've mentioned, uh, like I said, uh, like I said, uh, a few other challenges to the strong representationalists, and one of them is extended cognition. Is this does this have to do with the uh, Chalmers extended mind?
0: Um. Well, yes. Uh, so, extended cognition theorists. Think that the mind extends beyond the the borders of the of the organism; that it extends out into the world. Um, so, for example, the uh, classic uh, classic example that Chalmers and Clark use in their in their famous uh, uh, extended mind paper is a, a patient. Of, I think it's he's called Otto, who has uh, Alzheimer's disease and has to consult everything that he needs. He, he's, he's written it in a notebook and. Uh, has to consult the notebook to answer questions about, for example, where where uh, MoMA is in, 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 in New York City. Mm-hmm. Compare uh, a normal subject Inga just has to just consults her memory to find to to remember where uh, where MoMA is. And uh, Clark and Chalmers say are proponents of extent. I mean, there, there's a, a range of positions here but the idea is that this auto the alzheimer's patient's mind includes the notebook so the mind includes his brain and his nerv- central nervous system and also certain parts of the external world what parts exactly well parts that are that its the the, uh, the the notebook is part of the mind and not the coffee cup because it's reliably connected to uh to Otto's uh, thinking and and his acting in the world. So reliable connections, objects that are reliably connected to our internal processes count as parts of the mind.
1: And the idea then is that...
0: So, okay, so so an interesting implication, I hadn't really thought about this too much, but then uh, the contents of Otto's notebook would count not as public representations, Although they might be for Inga, because she can take the notebook and read it, but for Otto, they're going to be mental representations. Because they're they're part of his mind, even though they're outside his brain. Mm. So that's one implication for, uh, for representation, the notion of representation. It becomes a little bit uh, it changes our, our 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 notion of what representation mental representation is gonna be. It breaks down the distinction between public representation or external representation and mental representation.
1: And then one of the crucial different.
0: Now, I think you can see one problem with that. Sorry, sorry. No, go you ahead. can, you can now go and ahead. And get ahead of myself. The problem. Um, what I was going to say was that perceptual scientists, perceptual psychologists typically try to explain Uh, our perceptual and cognitive capacities by positing mechanisms, perceptual mechanisms that are engaged in in the process. And it looks like there's a bit of a... So what sense can we make of a perceptual mechanism for, for Otto? It looks like it follows from... Is Otto engaging his perceptual mechanisms when he looks at the notebook to remind himself of the address? Certainly, Inga is the normal subject, is engaged, she's reading what's on the page. It's not clear what to say about Otto, because that's part of his mind. So, in a sense, he's not perceiving the stuff that's written in the notebook. Um, uh, Inga is, but not Otto. Now they may in fact be engaging the same uh, you know, the same sim- the same or similar processes are going on in their in their visual system, but curiously, for auto, that's not a perceptual process at all. So that looks to me to be an implication of, of the extended mind view. Is that a problem? Well, it doesn't really seem to jibe with what perceptual psychologists are doing. I think that they would, de- you know, they definitely treat what's going on in. Otto and Inga's early visual system as instances of the same type of perceptual process. It's it, both are engaging uh, perceptual mechanisms. And that looks like something that the extended mind theorist is can't say. So that's one worry that I have with the view,
1: hmm. but on, on the highest,
0: I think, though, that same to, to point Just to address your question, the notion of mental representation is going to, you know, has a different character when it's applied kind of to the the extended mind. Mm
1: -hmm. So on the highest level, at the highest level, the extended mind theorist is going to be referencing representations outside of the mind when engaging in psychological explanation that the strong representationalist won't?
0: Um, well, it looks it this may be a verbal dispute. Um, they're outside the mind for somebody like Fodor, for right. non extended mind theorist, but they're inside the mind right. for outside the brain uh, for an extended mind theorist. <laughs> uh, yeah, sorry, outside the brain, yeah. but inside the mind. So, I mean, if it, if this doesn't have any implications for what perceptual scientists are doing, if they're just gonna say, I don't care what you extended mind theorists uh, decide as the mind, I'm interested in perceptual processes and I'm gonna treat Otto and Inga the same, then it looks like this may be a purely uh, verbal dispute. I think that, that uh, philosophers probably shouldn't spend too mm. much time on. If it doesn't have implications for how the, the psychology is going to go and the neuroscience is going to go, then I don't think it really should worry us too much. Well,
1: there were two other challenges that I was less familiar with that you mentioned to the strong representationalist, and they were one, embodied cognition, and two, inactive cognition. What are, what are these two theories?
0: So um, to some extent, these, I think there's some overlap between these various E, e theses, extended, embodied, inactive. And I think there's a, I think there's a fourth that's not coming to mind. So the, the embodied uh, theorist says that, uh, that cognitive processes are, are necessarily embodied. So you can't understand them simply by understanding what the brain is doing. Inactive theorists uh, claim that, they typically claim that representation is not going to play any role in our explanation of of cognition. And they claim claim further, I think these are two distinct theses, that cognitive systems are to be seen as kind of uh, reacting or, the terminology sort of escapes me for the moment, but that the, the the processes should not be decomposed into that the system should be treated as a whole as a, a non-decomposable uh, unit that I mean is made up of uh, parts of parts of the environment and parts of. You know, relevant parts of the environment and the brain and the, the central nervous system, but the strategy for understanding cognitive processes should not be to try to decompose them into components uh, that don't cross the organism uh, environment line. So the, the the mind then on for the inactivist is kind of thoroughly. Uh, made up of the uh, in, envir- in environment and organism in a way that, can, that doesn't immediately sort of decompose into two separate things, hmm. organism and environment. So um, so, inactivists claim that the, that the de- decomposition strategy is a bad strategy. That's not the way to understand cognitive processes. That's, de- that's doing, uh, doing damage to the, the, the way that the, the processes work. They span, cognitive processes span the divide between organism and, and, and uh, and environment. Mm-hmm. Now, I think this, do you, do you want, should I say some more about this yeah, notion sure. of decomposition? I, I mean, maybe let me just say what I think that, the what are some of the interesting issues mm-hmm. that come out of this? One is, um, is what consequences the, these various views and activism, uh, in, embedded cognition and embodied cognition have for the, uh, for the idea that mental representations play a crucial role in cognition. I think it's not obvious. I mean, I mentioned one of them that, you know, which may be just a verbal point that for auto, the stuff in the, in the note written in the notebook, those are mental representations, but that's kind of putting that aside, which I think is, is really just a verbal point. Um, it's not clear. Um, what to say about whether there's going to be a role for mental representations in their account. And activists and embodied theorists tend to be um, anti-representational. One of their heroes is the, uh, the, the roboticist, Rodney Brooks, who says that, who's uh, anti, explicitly anti-representationalist and, and claims that he says that the brain can use the world as its own model or sorry, not the brain, but the organism can use this, the system can use the world as its own model. Um, That sounds interesting, but, you know, something we should think first about that is how, how does, how does the organism use the world as its own model? What, what, um, what is the process going to look like? And so I think it's not at all clear that, um, these various models are not going to end up positing representations. Now, of course, I would understand any representations that are posited in my deflationary framework, that the content is going to be determined by various pragmatic considerations. So I think it's not obvious. uh, And in fact, there's a lot of dispute among inactivists and embodied theorists. Uh, Some tend to be representationalists, others not. So you get kind of a range of views about about whether such models are going to be committed to representations or not. Rather, whether representations are are gonna be needed to explain cognitive processes. And um, Andy Clark, for example. So Brooks, who's the father of embodied uh, cognition, claims that, uh, and and he's a roboticist, so his, his creations, can carry out interesting but fairly low-level tasks. And uh, Andy Clark, who's sympathetic to a lot of the Im- embedded and embodied in literature, um, claims that you know, that's fine, but it's not going to, as he puts it, scale up into interesting higher level uh, cognitive processes like the ones that are that are engaged in in, in language. And so there's so there's there's a lot of range of, of different opinions on whether representations are going to be, turn out to be necessary within these frameworks. So that's one issue of uh, whether representation is going to be, nece- going to turn out to be necessary when you get down to try and explain what, how exactly these systems are working. A second interesting question I think concerns this idea of decomposition. So an activist in particular stress don't decompose't don't, don't decompose the system into um, into components, some of which are internal and then and then the environment and then you know, a, a strategy, a kind of a well-worn strategy for understanding a complex, complex system is to decompose it into components and then explain the activity and capacities of the system in terms of the interaction of the various components. I think that's a, you know, a very general, Methodology, uh, not just in neuroscience and in psychology, but in understanding complex systems in general. How how your car works, for example. Um, so the the claims by an activist that that's not that that the system should not be decomposed into organism compo- elements of the organism and the environment. Um, I think is running against that kind of well-worn strategy for explaining how Mm. complex systems work. Like, I mean, I can say more about that if
1: you want. No, this is all really interesting.
0: Um, So one of the, so John Hoagland in the early, early nineties wrote a, a couple of interesting papers on, on the issue of decomposition. And he said that, uh, so in general, why do we decompose a complex system into, into parts mm-hmm. and then explain its its behavior in terms of the interaction? We, what, because we're trying to understand right. how it works. Right. We're trying to make the, the complex system intelligible. So one of uh, Hoagland's nice examples is, uh, is a, a TV set. So think of it, think of the old TV sets probably well before your time, mm-hmm. not a flat screen TV, but one of those really clunky thick things. Uh, you're trying to understand how it works. So well-worn strategy is decompose it into components and then understand how each component works and how they yeah. interact. Uh, so one way of decomposing it is to just slice it into cubes. And that's a possible decomposition. You know, just take a saw and slice it, you know, into one inch cubes in each dimension and then figure out how they go back to get, you know, how they, how those components interact. Well, That's a pretty sketchy conception of a component. So a component is supposed to have uh, some integrity. A one-inch cube of an arbitrary one-inch cube of a TV set is not a component of the TV set. The TV set's going to be made up of resistors and various kinds of parts that we we understand how they work and we can understand how they fit together. So that's a bad decomposition. That's not going to make the system intelligible. So, what would be a good decomposition? Hoagland claimed that a good decomposition it, it, a, 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 good, a component should be understood as something that is a, 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 a part of the system that's that's yeah. functionally uh, that you can functionally swap out. So you should be able to swap out the components that functional category, you should be able to swap out a component with, uh, with a a different physically realized thing that does the same thing. So that's why we can, you know, uh, your carburetor breaks down and you can swap out a functional, uh, Mm -hmm. functional, a different carburetor, but a functional, functionally equivalent one. So this notion of component is a functionally characterized Mm -hmm. idea. And that's, um, that underlies the, uh, the, the, the mechanist uh, claim that really understanding how the mind works requires decomposing it into components, but decomposing it into, not into functional components that are characterized simply by what they do, but it's got to bottom out into decomposing it into neural components. Gen, according to the mechanists, and they're running against this is kind of a view that's opposed to an activism and, and to old style functionalists in general. Um, that you've got to bottom out in, in some account of brain mechanisms. Hmm. Anyway, the, the point is that the the claim by an activist to don't decomp, don't try to decompose the system into organism and environment and then explain in, in terms of their interaction, this notion of decomposition is heavily loaded hmm. and there's all kinds of interesting issues with respect to that and how, how to understand cognition.
1: You actually have just led us to the last question that I really had, which was what is the alternative to this mechanist view that you just uh, laid out? And I have in mind, and maybe it's not necessarily a, a, a one Or the other but i have in mind the view that you've attributed to the quote unquote the new mechanists like where does it where does this differ from what you've just been describing
0: okay um so there's a number of different kind of uh, theoretical communities here there's the there's the inactivists who say don't i mean their religion is don't uh don't separate internal components from, from environment. Uh, mm-hmm. Functionalists would propose a decomposition that respects uh, that understands components as being functional, functional units. So functional units, old, this kind of old style functionalism is a point that, uh, that Putnam made in the sixties, that these the components of the, of the mind are they're they're multi, multiply realizable. Now the extent of the multiple realizability is up for grabs. In your if you're fixing your car and you the, car, the carburetor's shot, then you, you can you want to replace it with a carburetor for that particular kind of car. So it's a different one. It's it's, it's numerically distinct. It may have some different features, but it's uh it's. The multiple realizability is fairly constrained. So new mechanists, as I as I've said, think that you know their their claim is that the components have to bottom out into neural neural mechanisms. You have to understand how the realization is not uh, is not is not irrelevant to understanding how the how the, the mind is working. So the dispute here between functionalists like Rob Cummins. Writing important papers in the 70s and early 80s about functional analysis and functional decomposition, and the new mechanists now are, is the extent to which uh, one well one dispute is the extent to which uh, components of the mind are multiply realizable, and the old style functionalists claim that it doesn't you don't really have to care about how these components are. Uh, are realized in the brain. There just has to be a neural realization, but what that particular neural realization is, is, is not really a concern to somebody interested in understanding psychological processes or interested in psychological explanation. Now that can be, you know, that, that view could be, you can parody that view by saying, it doesn't really matter, multiple realization is, multiple realizability is widespread. There's obviously a continuum of positions here, the, the, new, the so-called new mechanists are concerned to say that uh, they're, they're, they're claiming that you don't have a genuine explanation of a cognitive process unless you can say what neural mechanisms instantiate those cognitive mechanisms or psychological mechanisms. All you've got, the way they put it is all you've got is, a, is a, you have a mechanism sketch but it doesn't, uh, doesn't approach kind of a genuine explanation of the, of, the, uh, of the process or the capacity. What? Now I think that they're, I mean, I, I could, sorry, go, go ahead.
1: Oh, no, no, you please continue.
0: I think they're overstating it. Yeah, so I was just gonna say that um, I think that one important, uh, that computational explanation characterizes or models psychological processes as mathematical processes.
1: Hmm.
0: And that's that that is so for example, um, many theories of early vision, posit um, smoothing processes to allow the mechanism to the the visual system to detect edges and to eliminate noise. So, uh, for example, uh, a mechanism in early vision might take as input uh, intensity values at particular points in the retinal image and compute the change of intensity over the image. So that's a mathematical process. And in general, that's a perfectly good example. It's a nice central example of computational explanation. So computational explanation is characterization of a ca- what's, it- what's essentially a causal process in mathematical terms construing it modeling it as a math, as a mathematical process and i think that that kind of characterization which is a computational characterization can be explanatory short of knowing how that mathematical process is actually realized in the brain so i think the new, the me- new mechanists are wrong about that i think they've overstated the case in claiming that unless you can say how the me- how these psychological mechanisms are realized, unless you can bottom out the analysis into neural, uh, neural mechanisms. Now, of course, there has to be, the process has to, it has to be physically neurally realized. But what I'm claiming is that this, there, this computational characterization of a psychological process as a mathematical process can be genuinely explanatory of the process without knowing how it's realized in the brain. Prior to knowing how it's realized in the brain, um, there are important constraints on positing, uh, uh, you know, characterizing a psychological process as a computational process. There are behavioral constraints, there are some neural constraints. You can't posit a process that requires an overwhelming amount of computational power—that's unlikely that the mechan- that the that the brain has. So there are constraints. What are the um, behavioral constraints? It's not just kind of freewheeling. It's, the behavioral constraints are. Um, so let me take a, a a simpler example. You could you could uh, of of some physical system that you discover you could posit that it it's an adder. So you mm. can to do that is to characterize. The inputs and outputs to the system as uh as representing add-ins and sums and you could and then you could just in order to do that you've got to be able to 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 say this physical when it goes into this physical state that's representing the number two and it goes into this physical state that's representing the number three and it should go into this other physical third physical state that represents the number five so you could come up with you could observe this thing over. You know, a, a really long period of time and come up with an, an interpretation of the inputs and outputs of this system as, as adding. Consist- means consistently interpreting the physical states you know, on the front end as add-ends and the physical state, the output as um, as, as sums. So, uh, and then they're physical. So that's in a computational interpretation of the thing. It's, an, it, it's, You're characterizing its causal processes as a mathematical process of adding. You could continue to continue to observe, and, and maybe it's maybe you know it's going to turn out that given more inputs, it, you, you can't sustain that interpretation of the thing as an adder. So its behavior doesn't more, more observed behavior fails to conform to the, char- the computational characterization that you've given with this interpretation. So that's a behavioral constraint. It might break down when, you know, you try doing something different to it, and it, do, it, it be, the way it behaves doesn't correspond to your interpretation of its behavior as, as adding, as taking add-ins and producing sums. So that, that would be a behavioral constraint just based on op, further observation of the system. So computational characterizations are always subject to those kinds of empirical, behavioral constraints. be so far you've got a pretty good mathematical characterization of this thing, but look, when you do this to it, it breaks, that characterization breaks down. So the second point I was going to make uh, is that, so the computational characterization of the process as a mathematical process, modeling it on on mathematical, modeling the causal process as a mathematical process is subject to constraint, you know, behavioral constraints and, other sorts of constraints, and the second point is that uh, the hypo—it's a hypothesis that the system is computing, uh, that it's an adder, that it's computing addition. Always subject to always subject to disconfirmation by further observation. So, wh- what what does that mean? How does that tie back to the new mechanist claim that they're off that? It, Genuine explanation requires bottoming in, into neural processes. Well, models, scientific models, computational models, they're always there. They may be offered as as explanations, and they're but they're 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 revisable. They might it might turn out to be not quite addition that it's doing, but something, something slightly different, or maybe maybe it's quite different from addition. It's a hypothesis about what the system's actually doing, and it's subject to revision. Or maybe even um, disconfirmation based on how 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 things work out, how what further observations uh, bear on it. Hmm. So the, the whole point of this diatribe was that the new mechanists are, I think, are uh, are overstating when they say a, a, con, a model, a a, a a proposed model of a psychological process to be genuinely explanatory better. It better tell us how the processes that it posits are realized in, in, in neural, neural matter, Hmm. the computational explanation or characterization, let me put it that way in more neutral terms. um, It's, it's, it's predictive. It's going to predict what the system's going to do given new inputs. Given tampering with the input states of the system, it's going to predict what what the system's going to do. Um, It may or may not comply with the characterization, and that characterization. So, but prediction, uh, predict prediction is an explanation. So the new mechanist is going to say it's a great predictive device, but to be genuinely explanatory, it has to it has to it has to explain what the how these processes are realized in neural stuff.
1: Am I at all on the right track? Do you think in thinking that the Churchlands would be sympathetic to the new mechanist?
0: I think they probably, uh, uh, yeah, uh, uh, they, they would, would be. be? Okay. I think that, I think they would be. I think that's. I mean, the new mechanists don't say anything about. Uh, I mean, to some extent, they're not addressing the questions that the, that had preoccupied the Churchlands. Over their careers, but uh, they're proposing, a, I think, a, a, a picture that the Churchlands would be quite happy with. Well, now, I mean, having even having said that, I haven't I haven't thought about this, but um, mechanists are not adverse to positing representations and intentional content and all of that. So, there, are mechanists, some mechanists are robust realists about representation and so further commitments of, of mechanists might uh the churchill's might not be sympathetic to, to the way that particular mechanist models are are articulated no. and developed i think that that's another another issue but to the idea that uh genuine explanation of psychological processes is should posit components that inter components that are re- that that are neural components and their interactions they're they be completely on board with that very sympathetic
1: to that idea well frankie this has been i think like six months uh scheduled uh it was a long wait but it was so worth it so thanks so much for sitting down and talking all of this yeah theory. sorry
0: about that i just had had so much going on
1: <laughs> no problem so thanks again thanks so much for and doing uh, this with me yeah uh, th-
0: th- thanks so much for inviting me mm-hmm. it's really been fun
1: hold on geeselings. before you go Please uh like, subscribe, follow if you haven't already. Smash all those buttons. And also if you haven't followed me on uh Twitter at Robinson Earhart, or if you're not joining me every morning as I eat my pint of ice cream on Twitch at Robinson Earhart on Robinson Eats, please do so.